0: Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron.
1: Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Tom Sisti. Tom is the Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And Tim Cook is the executive director for the Center of Procurement Advocacy. Uh, Tom and Tim, T-squared, as we (laughs) like to call them in the business. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning, Roger. Great to see you again. Yeah. Um, That's pretty hard on radio there, (laughs) Tim. But (laughs) We'll keep going. So... uh, Um, first of all, so, and actually I'm turning to you first, Tim, and, um, you know, you're the, the man who covers all things up on the Hill and, um, you know, we're in the midst of trying to figure out, you know, the, I guess the operating dynamics and especially on the Senate side. So I'd like you to give us an update of where things are and, and, and just generally like how it all works. I think it'd be interesting for folks to hear.
2: Sure, Roger. It'd be my pleasure. So, um, Really the focus of Congress right now is the confirmation of uh, the Biden administration, the issue of COVID and how to do some type of future relief. And then finally, we just got word today that impeachment will begin on uh, the 9th of February in the Senate. So let me just start out um, with the House. Um, This week, the House is in recess. When they return next week, they're gonna turn their um, complete focus on the COVID bill. Of course, um, we've read a lot about the COVID bill, this uh, $1.9 trillion proposal from uh, the administration that is supposed to help in many ways and augment many of the things that were passed in the last COVID bill. Uh, Just to cut to the chase, they're hoping that um, they can pass this either as a bill and send it to the Senate, or use the reconciliation process of the uh, budget committee to pass it and then send it to the Senate. Um, Word out is that they're hoping that this package could be completed by mid-March, which seems like a long way away, but actually getting the ideas on paper and uh, into law and then debating the, the different parts of the law and the bill will take time on the floor and in the committees in the House. So um, that's pretty cut and dry, Roger, because the House is still a Democrat um, majority. And, but now when we talk, start talking about the Senate, things get to be a little bit more interesting. So um, based on the Georgia elections, uh, we all know that the, the, the Senate became uh, a situation where there's 50 Republicans and 50 Democrat senators. And so the vice president will break all ties uh, in that case, um, because uh, the vice president is part of the Democrats, um, it, it's, uh, Senator Schubert became the majority leader. And um, let me just say that everything in the Senate works on the principle of uh, of unanimous consent, which means agreement before you go ahead and do something. Otherwise, debate is required, and time is provided for debates. So, um, in with the comedy of the the, the of working together the uh, leader McConnell or former leader McConnell and and now leader uh, Schumer tried to work on an organization resolution that would explain to um, the different committees in the Senate how many staffers they need and how they're going to conduct business unfortunately because of the issue about what they're going to do with the filibuster um, they were unable to come to that resolution so right now the Senate is working on confirming um, different picks from the Biden administration. In fact, this week, um, there might be votes on uh, treasury state, DHS, transportation, justice, and HHS. Um, Right now what they're doing is they're doing committee hearings on the different members and then they uh, vote in the committee and pass that recommendation to the full Senate and they do the vote. And so, but right now, because there is no organization agreement, there's uh, a little bit of, of unique uh, situation in the Senate in that they're using the same committee structure as when the Republicans held uh, power. And and so um, things could get jammed up in committee, they have not yet, but right now we've uh, seen um, the Secretary of Defense get passed on the floor. So hope springs eternal and that we'll have the continued um, uh, confirmation so that leadership can be placed in these different agencies is it it's correct to say that with the same
3: organizational structure you uh you could have committees with more
2: minority members than majority members absolutely and that's what they're dealing with right now but uh it it, no no uh there there have been different appointees that have been held up but none have been uh, not favorably voted out of committee to the Senate floor, so uh, I have I have not heard about um, kind of the the probability of that happening. But right now, again, I say hope hope springs eternal that they can move these nominations so that they can get the needed leadership to the different parts of the administration to continue working on COVID and the other legislative priorities.
1: So, can you talk a little bit, Tim? Like as someone who worked in this arena for you know forever just like the whole issue about how this sorts out with regard to staffing and making all those decisions a little bit some of the nuts and bolts you know or boiler room kind of stuff that actually makes a big difference at the end of the day when you know congress is trying to legislate
2: absolutely thank you roger so the, the issue of, um, of committees and how their uh, the members are put on the committees and how the committees are staffed is very important um, because the majority gets uh, more members on the committee than the minority. And because they have more members, they also require more staff. Um, the majority basically runs the, the organizations of bills that are coming to committee or going to the floor. And so um, this power sharing agreement and discussion about how many people are going to be on the different committees and who they are is very important to move forward with the day-to-day business of the Senate. And that's why this organization resolution is important. Right now it's being held up because again, I said the, the whole principle of the Senate is that things come to the floor based on unanimous consent of all 100 senators, which um, some of them might not agree with the policy, but they agree to let debate happen. But any senator has the um, uh, prerogative to stop uh, any type of legislation moving forward um, using what they call the filibuster. Well, it's just the intent that they could just talk forever about a certain thing and hold up the the, uh, the workings of the Senate. And so um, right now there's debate about whether the filibuster should remain in place so that um, really if things weren't agreed upon by everyone, that they could still move ahead and just vote on them. But it has been a, um, a history and a, a tradition of the Senate to have the filibuster to act as like a cooling force to debate policy and decide on what really should move forward from the House. So, Tom, do you have, you know, your experience, you worked up on the Hill as a staffer,
1: you know, just the, the, the allocation of resources and how that sort of, you, how you saw that work in real world application in terms of getting things done?
3: Well, as Tim said, the when you're in the majority, you have more members, need more budget, um, so the budgets get adjusted accordingly. There are more staff on the majority side than on the minority side. With respect to the operation, the filibuster, it's you know, it just goes back to you know fifth grade civics, right? It's it's the idea that you you want to assure that there is debate and that minority views are are um, are understood and have, have voiced um, that you don't have, remember what they used to talk about, the tyranny of the majority. So, I mean, there are some you know foundational principles at play, and I, I think it's going to have to sort itself out. I would be um, interested, Tim, in what's the prognosis for this? I mean, do you see this being sorted out soon, longer time, what?
2: Well, that's that's really the question of the day. Um, I would say that um, what we'll do is continue to kind of uh, move through this situation until either there's a problem where we're having uh, with the nominations getting through, or uh, we get into the impeachment, which uh, no one's quite sure how long once the impeachment starts on 9 February will last. But I mean, basically, after the impeachment is complete, that's when this organization resolution will be most important because then we'll really have to focus on the work of the Senate on a day-to-day basis um, and be prepared for whatever is sent over uh, from the House in the context of COVID legislation. Um, Also, it's possible, and folks have been talking about it, uh, is that the Senate could uh, have a a group of senators who want to start writing their own possible COVID legislation, which would be um, a pared down version of the $1.9 trillion package, but it would be something that possibly the Senate would then move to once the house moved, um, their COVID reg- resolution
1: resolution. Right. Would that be
2: kind of that group in the middle? Yes. That's very important because, uh, right now I just, uh, to, to just, uh, boil it down. Some of the senators feel that, uh, there had just been a package done and that, uh, what else needs to be done. But um, I mean, it's been covered well in the press that they really need additional monies for state and local uh, uh, immunizations and mass immunizations and uh, important um, continued production of the the vaccines. And so there are some parts that didn't get as much uh, possible attention in the last COVID bill that probably needs attention now. So some of the centers are saying, let's just do that part and then leave the other less um, urgent, exigent things for future COVID bills. Tim, just to clarify,
3: um, resolution of this issue of power sharing, um, is that something that can be outside of the context of an agreement between majority, new majority, new minority leaders? Um so a unilateral action on the floor, say, or something like that, or is this something that must be resolved between the two leaders? Uh,
2: I, I think that's another uh, big question of our times. I think it has to be resolved because um, it really is the foundation of how they're going to move forward with debate. And if it's not resolved, then it's quite possible that cooler heads might not prevail. And then in, um, I guess, an exigent situation, uh, one side decides to abolish the filibuster and then moves through with their, uh, their agenda, but, but that might not be good because we're already under a, in a situation where we all need to, uh, come together to try to solve these thorny problems about COVID. And I think the senators just don't want to have a uh, surprise in whether it could end up in a situation where, um, the rules are changed in the middle of an important debate.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks guys. And we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, we'll start talking about some more mundane stuff like section 876 or section 889 and some more procurement related things. I'm Roger Walder. My guests today are Tom Siste, he's the executive vice president, uh, general counsel for the coalition for government procurement and Tim Cook, who is the, Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti, who is the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And, um, uh, guys, um, we talked a lot about the current i guess state of play on the hill um and but this segment i are mean, going to turn back into sort of like the procurement boiler room here and talk a little bit about some of the things that are still out there uh, from previous ndas that are even being implemented or considered i guess the first one i want to talk about tom is section 876 um and just you know i know um gsa's contemplating that for its schedules program, perhaps. It's using it on the Astro procurement and it's made indications it will use it on the Polaris small business uh, IT GWAC and, you know, just looking for opportunities to utilize it, I guess. So um, just your thoughts on, on where it is and, you know, what do you think the next steps are?
3: Okay, well, to begin with, um, just a baseline, 876 provided that um, you, uh, don't have to, um, include price in the evaluation of competitive proposals, provided everyone's going to receive, uh, uh, each qualifying contractor receives a, a, uh, a contract and there'll be individual task orders based on hourly rates. You don't need to have price considered in the evaluation. And so that was passed as, uh, section 876 of the fiscal 19. National Defense Authorization Act. So we're over two years, and um, it's been a matter of uh, discussion why this hasn't been implemented on the civilian side. Uh, GSA this uh, past year issued an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, syncing comments uh, regarding how the section should be implemented. Um, this was kind of a surprise, I think, because it's... A pretty straightforward provision on its face. really—it's not ambiguous. There's not much legislative history to go with it, so there's not like a conflict between the face of the statute and the report language. It was written to assure that where you had contracts awarded to each qualifying offeror, you know, you, with task orders that are individually competed, you know, I have to look at price because price isn't definitized at that point. You don't have your requirements out there. Um, for specific transactions, uh, the idea being that, hey, um, you can go out there um, when you have your requirements definitized, get a better, more accurate pricing there. I think there's some discussion about services to be acquired on an hourly basis. What does the phrase mean? Um, and uh, it's, it's it's hard because I think it's being interpreted as per hour basis, not services that are um, that are are priced based on the associated number of hours to perform those services. So you get into a situation where commercial entities are engaging in sort of a non-commercial set of practices to compete for various jobs, and they run the risk of being uh, compelled to do cost buildup. Uh, in their proposals, which really is not a standard commercial practice whatsoever. So despite the fact that you have a provision whose title is increasing competition at the task order level, you you have this anomalous restriction of competition um, because there are less vendors that can compete in the process.
1: So, so what you're saying is that the, the the use of the term hourly basis, or I think that's, I'm paraphrasing it, is really not about labor hour rates. It's about measurements of time in terms exactly. of the service to be performed?
3: Exactly. If it were an hourly, if it were a per hour basis, the statute would have said per hour. It doesn't say that. It says hourly rates.
1: Hourly basis. Mm-hmm what do you think the next sort of step do you see for see a, you know, proposed rule coming out or do you think they need to take a bit more time on where, where, where you, where's it going now? You have new administration. I'm presumably they're going to be looking at this as a potential way to increase competition.
3: Well, I hope they don't take too much more time because I'm going to be in a nursing home by the time they get the final rule out, but it's, see, I think, um, we need to see, see a rule come out. and Maybe uh, it's time for Congress uh, to turn around and issue report language, something um, clarifying or just uh, directing GSA so they understand what the thrust was uh, uh, of the, the original language to say, you know, go forward, you can do this, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, um, so that it, it makes clear... Um, that uh, there's not confusion about this. Uh, the only confusion might be why it's not being implemented quickly.
1: Hey, so okay, well, we we yeah, so let's turn now to you know. Cause I think you're right. I think at some point here, GSA is going to need to start thinking about how how it's going to implement it on schedules, how it's just going to implement it generally, and it could be rulemaking. It could be also just. You know, addressing it via the program itself. You know, without you know having to do a boatload of rulemaking, Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll have to see how that all shakes out. But another you know area, and I think a final rule just came out from the Department of Defense. We're talking about Section 889. So, can you? We got about two minutes left, and could you start on that? We'll continue the discussion in the next segment um, on 889. Please. What? First of all, what is? Let's remind the folks what 889. It's a new year. We're coming out, getting back to work and, you know, just, you know, get a re- reset. So what is adD
3: So uh, under Section 889 of the Fiscal 19 NDAA, um, uh, Congress uh, institute restrictions on the government's ability to obtain products and incorporate services that use uh, certain banned telecommunications and no surveillance technologies as a substantial or A critical part of uh, what's being provided Um, there. That that, so, uh, under 889A1A, had its final rule issued. uh, Vendors had to um, make a representation that they either did or did not um, use the covered equipment or services. If they used it, they had to discuss remediation. 889A1A also had ongoing reporting obligations, so that uh, if the vendor came across um, the equipment in the provi- uh, in providing um, products or services of the federal government, they had a day under the original rule to report it and uh, three days to remediate. Now, in the final rule, thankfully, um, uh, there was some change to the reporting requirements because a day just wasn't enough. It went to to 10 days and then the remediation from three to 30 uh, to allow people to come into compliance with that rule. Um, Section 889 also has another part to it, 889A1B that restricts the government obtaining products or services from those companies that use such banned products or services. So the first one is I can't buy it if I'm the government. So vendors represent. The second one is um, I can't really do business with you if you use it. So again, vendors represent. We had an interim rule come out last year. Um, It talked about vendors reasonably identifying um, what, exists in their system explicitly saying that the vendors did not need a third-party audits. But when you get to that representation, again, uh, same deadlines, I'm sure given what we just saw that that be changed. Um, the vendors have to represent, I do, do not use. Okay. So it's a binary representation.
1: Now, so, Why don't we hold it right there and we come back and I'm going to ask you a little bit more to to, to define what use means or what people need to think about when they talk about this. Okay. My guests today are Tom Sisti. He's the Executive Vice President General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And Tim Cook is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. I'm Roger Waldron and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today are Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy, and Tom Sisti is the General Counsel and uh, uh, Executive Vice President for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And guys, I just want to... Um, Get back on this issue of 889, and I really think the the biggest thing and the, the the problematic, I guess, if that's the right word, or the challenging, or the area of opportunity, I guess, whatever you want to call it, is this is what is use. So you know the stat the statute prohibits the government from contra- from contracting with companies that use Huawei equipment or other, and other you know certain identified Chinese companies' equipments. What does use mean, Tom?
3: Well, it's easy to understand use if you interpret it as in the context of a government contract. It's another thing if uh, you say any use. Uh, Many companies that are supplying goods and services to the federal government are global entities. They might have entities overseas that use um, these uh, services or this equipment, and the question is, is that really where you want to reach? Um, Now, it'd be one thing if you define the use as having a nexus to a government contract, or if you said that the entity providing um, the goods or services to the federal government does not use them, and is sufficiently walled off. I mean, these are issues that have not really fully been vetted and uh, were not clarified, certainly in the final rule um, that issued on A1A and not in the interim rule on
1: A1B. Okay, so um, what do you think companies need to think about when they're trying to that their systems to comply with this?
3: I think they have to, well, I can tell you what they need to think about, to tell you what they, what we're starting to see. And I can tell you where, where I think the government needs to think as well. Um, They need to think about who their obviously, who their supply chains are, who their relations and relationships are with, identify those entities and make sure um, to the maximum extent practical, they, they, Are not um, engaging in violative behavior. That's hard. It's especially hard if you're a prime contractor because you're you're kind of taking the word down the line. So what does that mean? We're seeing some entities who are primes send out certification documents, if you will, in anticipation of having to assert a defense uh, should somebody drop the ball on this uh, in internal um, assessment. Um, you know, we can make all these arguments. These are, um, you know, we, we're all lawyers. We can all sit and say, okay, well, this language has to be contextualized, but it's not. Okay. And, uh, the, uh, expressed, uh, drafting of language that makes a binary decision I do, do not use, um, uh, creates the potential for a, uh, uh, misrepresentation, false claim act, case, whatever. Um, it seems to me the government should be thinking about uh, notions of safe harbor. The idea that is that you want to incent behavior among your vendors to uh, do the right thing, to assess their existing systems to and to maintain ongoing monitoring of those systems. So it There ought to be some kind of provision for those vendors that establish an internal tracking system that conduct due diligence to not be subject to um, administrative action, court action, um, in the event that um, something pops up. In other words, it's kind of like a good faith behavior, safe harbor um, provision. It would not require repealing the statute. It would not change the thrust of the statute, what it, it, it wants. It would incent the behavior that the drafters seem to have wanted, which is to get this stuff out of government contracts and not otherwise result in a giveaway to vendors because the, the pro for the quid is that um, you have to do the diligence. You have to, established tracking, you have to maintain ongoing monitoring. So you do all those things,
1: basically the government would cut you a break. All right. Well guys, you know what? Um we're already up on the on the break. So I'm gonna have to hold our next topic, um, it's which I want to discuss, which is the Buy American okay. Act. And um and there's lots of focus on domestic capabilities in the wake of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, the revelations about, you know, our dependence on other places with regard to medical equipment. I think that sort of shun, has shone a light on it, but it extends into other areas. And I know it was a focus of the Trump administration and is now a focus of the Biden administration as well. And just want to hear where you think things are going on that in that regard. My guests today are Tom Sisti. He's the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. And Tim Cook is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Tom Sisti. Tom is the Executive (laughs) of vice president general counsel for the coalition for government procurement and Tim cook is the executive director for the center for procurement advocacy. And in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about Tom, about the buy America act and, and what's going on in that regard or domestic sourcing, uh, you know, which has been a, you know, I think is a, is a bipartisan sort of priority right now. Um, and then Tim and turn to you to finish up, just talk about the policy agenda. You see, you know, uh, working its way out for this Congress. So first, uh, Tom, with regard to the Buy American Act, what's the latest?
3: Well, I think uh, the uh, president signed a new executive order on Buy American um, where uh, we will have an individual uh, assigned to monitor the implementation of the Buy American Act and the efforts of of agencies to assure um, that where uh, the statute says so, uh, they are um, contracting with domestic manufacturers using domestic product and um, not uh, exploiting inappropriately um, exceptions that might exist in statute. And I think just to, to level set, um, yeah, I think uh, people sometimes perceive the Buy American Act as a mandate, uh, as a restriction on certain buying. And I don't think they recognize it's really a price premium statute that um, under certain circumstances where the content doesn't reach the uh, appropriate thresholds, um, a premium is applied uh, to the bid the foreign bid yes um, to the bid that contains the foreign product and um it's different for the small businesses and large businesses but the point is that um uh evaluated prices will be adjusted and then if after the adjustment the uh foreign bid still um, is, is the winner, then the contracting can can take place. So it's not, the reason I I bring this out is it's not, when you say buy American, okay, now they're going to buy American products. Well, no, it just means that we're going to apply the statute that, uh, is a price premium statute, applies a premium. And after that premium, we could still have contracting. Now, why is this important? Well, because you, um, obviously, uh, if you're good at math, you can, you can sort of game the system if you can construct uh, uh, a proposal that accounts for that, that differential. The other thing I think um, that people have to recognize is that recently 2018, I think we had a a significant bump up in the micro purchase threshold. It was $3,500. It's now uh, 10,000. So, uh, more Than triple, okay, which means that below on the, the reason important, below that threshold, uh, the Buy American Act and other socioeconomic programs do not uh, apply. So it um, remains to be seen um, really how much is slipping through these types of exceptions, uh, even with rigorous compliance
1: and oversight from a practical perspective in the Buy American Act applicability, isn't, you know, the Trade Agreements Act sort of the biggest exception to it?
3: It is. I mean, it applies to most contracts uh, into the federal government, over 160000 $182,000. Yeah. 182, I got to keep up. Um, and uh, unless there's a, a specific statutory exception for uh, for a particular type of product, like specialty metals or things like that, um, yeah, the Trade Agreements Act is going to apply, and it's an exception to the Buy American Act. So yeah, this is, yet again, another example of these these um, channels that flow off from the Buy American Act, either at micro-purchase threshold, Trade Agreements Act. I mean, all of these things, uh, you could have pristine compliance with the Buy American Act, and still not necessarily um, affect um, the the ultimate policy of getting more domestic manufacture, more domestic content.
1: Right. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what other steps that the administration takes to try to address that, you know domestic capabilities, manufacturing capabilities moving forward, um, which sort of is a great segue to Tim and Tim, I just want to, you know, we got about uh, three minutes left or so on the show and I just want to get your sense of what you think the biggest, you know, you talked about COVID relief, but just on the policy sort of procurement policy, policy area that, you know, we live in, you know, here in the procurement world. Um, what do you see Congress sort of focusing on?
2: Well, thank you, Roger. So uh, I really feel like as, as soon as they move through the COVID legislation, that the focus will be on economic recovery. And I think the main tool that they believe will help economic recovery is a major infrastructure bill. And so the, um, the parts of that are coming out with uh, uh, during the confirmation process, but I would say uh, probably by April, we'll have more insight into that. Um, the other thing that we'll be expecting is probably in uh, April, late April, May, it, it will be delayed, but the president's FY22 budget will be coming out. And that'll give us some insights on um, the path for uh, moving forward. As soon as that budget comes out and as soon as the appropriators can meet about the um, different amounts for the different committees, then they'll start the appropriations hearing process. And the, the simultaneous to that will be the authorization process. One of the main focuses is the National Defense Authorization Act. And so they'll be working on that. Um, in infrastructure, I think you need to include that there's going to be some money and focus on IT modernization based on the uh, large issue of the Solar Winds Act and discussion about um, AI, and supply chain, as we mentioned. And then I would just end with um, the debt ceiling. Uh, will go into probably extraordinary measures sometime in August. So that will have to be dealt with. And the current feeling is that because the budget's delayed, that we might need a CR beginning on the 1st of October for the new fiscal year as they continue the appropriations process. Okay, that's a, that's a good uh, lineup of stuff. Um, and it's,
1: it really is going to be interested like the connection between infrastructure and the Buy American, Buy America, two different statutes, how that's going to play out in terms of infrastructure and the use of domestic steel and construction materials. That's a whole other issue, but something to be watching very closely as well. So I want to thank my guest today, Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement and Tim Cook. Tim is the Executive Director for the Center for Procurement Advocacy. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.